Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. At long last, it is primary election day for Cleveland mayor and city council and a bunch of elections out in the suburbs. We'll know, hopefully, by the end of today, who will emerge. Although Seth Richardson has published a story saying we might not know because it's a close race. The ballots will not all be in for days. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues today, Layla Atassi and Laura Johnston. Lisa Garvin is taking a day off. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Happy Election Day. Happy Election Day. So yeah, excited. It is. It's going to be. <laughs> I, I hope we have results. I hope we know. We're I, not, we're not going to know. We might we might know we might know number one. We might not know number two, which will give the number one a great chance to spend ten days campaigning before the others even know if they're in the race. I'm so, sure they uh, none of them will stop campaigning. <laughs> they will keep until, going until they're just dead in the water here. <laughs> what's nice is because they're all Democrats, there's none of that fraud stuff. There's nobody making bogus claims that the election's being stolen because that's a Republican <laughs> that's, that's a, wedge yeah, right. issue, which they're already pulling it in California. It's so ridiculous. The election has been stolen. It's like 65% of Republicans will tell pollsters the election was stolen, even though there is absolutely zero evidence to it. This country is in major trouble when people are that delusional. Mm. Let's begin. How do Democrats propose to change the horribly gerrymandered maps that Governor Mike DeWine and fellow Republicans proposed for Ohio? And what did people have to say about those maps from DeWine and company at a hearing in Cleveland Monday attended by the governor? Laura Johnston, this went deep. Yeah, deep and long. Six hours we're talking. Robin Goist was a trooper and sat through this at the uh, Community College East in Warrensville Heights. The good news is all the members were there. So DeWine showed up, LaRose, they were all there in person. Nobody has sent anybody in their stead. Um, and wait, wait, there was... and we, should, we should point out, the last time they had a hearing in Cleveland, none of the Republicans showed up. And we did roast them Keith for Faber that. showed up. Or, I'm sorry, Keith up? Faber showed up and nobody else. The governor didn't and, and Frank LaRose didn't. So it is nice that they had the decency to appear and hear from people. Yes, absolutely. And the Democrats, uh, State Senator Vernon Sykes and Rep Representative Amelia Sykes, which, by the way, is a father-daughter duo, they introduced proposed changes to the Republican maps that people are so angry about because about more than 70 people spoke. There was more than 100 people there. They were in offshoot uh, side um, meeting rooms because they couldn't all fit in. And the majority of them just blasted the Republican maps. They talked about how they were splitting communities in half and school districts. They made no sense. There were narrow swaths through counties that just they could not understand. And so LaRose, I guess, kept putting out and saying, did the Democratic maps correct this? But I mean, those were just introduced in the meeting yesterday. Nobody's had time to study them. But um, yeah, we can get into and some look, crazy quotes. 
But think about how bogus that is. Yeah. Instead of saying, you're right, we really made bogus gerrymandered maps and we shouldn't have done what you're saying. He immediately tries to turn the attention on the Democrats. The, the five Republicans are the majority on this thing. They should do it right. That's a deflection. That's Frank LaRose not taking responsibility for violating the will of the voters. What were some of the, the big time quotes? OK, so the co-president of the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland, Catherine LaCroix, she pointed out that the Shaker Heights district doesn't make it a lot of sense. It po- packs in a large minority population from Widmere and then separates the school district. And she said the commission proposal is based on an unconstitutional approach to map making. Based on today's testimony, I'm tempted to feel encouraged by the Democratic caucus, but she says she urges them to, re- to reject it. There was a Lakewood guy who said he and his wife moved back to Ohio to be in your family after they had kids to discover that the state, quote, keeps moving more and more to the extreme right. He said they've lost their trust and that they're not listening to the voters. They're just trying to protect their party. Layla Tassi, Robin Goist was there deep into the night. We grabbed her yesterday, said, hey, can you cover this hearing? Not knowing that she'd be working until 2.30 in the morning. Uh, And she told you she didn't want to leave because each speaker had a different point. That's right. You know, there was at some point I realized that we were several hours into this thing and I texted her and and said, you know, Robin, do you you feel like you want to cut bait and just start writing at this point? And I said, I assume that the testimony is becoming redundant at this point. And she was like, actually, no, everyone who takes the mic is making a different point about how extremely skewed these maps are and they're cutting up the neighborhoods and 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 how the maps don't represent the will of the people who voted to end partisan gerrymandering. And, and sure enough, like when I see her story, it's packed full of quotes. Every single one is as compelling as the next. I mean, it's just incredible. And, you know, one thing that I thought was very interesting about this hearing, unfortunately, you know, the, the counter proposal that the Democrats offered last night was in the form of a map that had no geographic boundaries marked. So with each criticism uh, against the Republican map, the Republicans would say, well, does this Democratic map solve your problem? And it was impossible to tell. So that was, you know, some lame way that the Republicans were, were able to undercut some of the criticism that was being lobbed their direction. But wait, but, but, but stop, stop. That's complete BS. Because when they say, does the Democratic map solve the problem? The answer should have been, you're supposed to solve the problem. You are constitutionally <laughs> bound right. to follow the rules. You solve the problem. You have the majority on this commission. Your maps are completely bogus. That That is just so lame to deflect also- like that. You took an extra week to come up with the maps. Couldn't you do That's any right. better than this? That's right. You know, and somebody somebody in the audience, Chris, uh, you made the point, I think it was during an editorial board meeting, perhaps, of, about how it's unconstitutional that the Republicans would suggest that they had they didn't take into account how people might vote in any of these districts. That's supposed to be part of a process. Somebody in the audience must have picked your brain from a distance and, and <laughs> mentioned that during the hearing. They they threw that out there and said, you know, how how could you say you don't you, you didn't take that into consideration? You have to. It's mandated by the Constitution. So they've just they've been, look, let's face it. The five Republicans on this commission completely blew off the Constitution. They didn't do the map at the deadline when they were supposed to on um, the first the, or the seventh. They didn't they didn't follow the rules about looking at how they're going to vote. They didn't look at compactness. They didn't look at keeping communities together. They just got in a back room somewhere 
and and want to preserve their super majority, which does not at all reflect the way Ohio breaks down, which in and of itself is not constitutional. What they're doing is guaranteeing it'll go to court. And I hope spurring the League of Women Voters or somebody to go back to the voters with a new way of doing this that takes all these bozos out of it because you can't trust them. They're proving that they're putting party ahead of the people. Can't, can't on, say me. anything to that. That Well said. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Check out Robin Goy's story on Cleveland.com. It published this morning. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish making conditions at the juvenile detention center worse by the way he is handling the idea of fair wages for guards at the center and the county jail? Leila Tassi, it boggles my mind how every time there's a decision to be made by Armand Budish, he makes the wrong decision. Every single time. It's like, what is wrong with this guy? He ought to just start going in the opposite. Whatever his gut tells him, (laughs) do the opposite. That's Oh, that's excellent. So in this case, the juvenile court administrative judge, uh, Thomas O'Malley, had asked the county to give guards at the juvenile detention center that same 20% raise that corrections officers were had received at the adult jail recently. And he warned that, you know, the juvenile facility is facing a staffing crisis, which is going to blow up. And it really already has. So Monday, Armin Budish gave guards at the juvenile detention facility 12% raises. He, he I mean, come that. on. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, offered that. His, his spokeswoman, Mary Louise Madigan, told Corey Schaefer that the two sides are still negotiating, but, but she wouldn't release any of the details of where they are with that. And the, the county's proposal would pay newly hired detention center officers about $21 an hour. That's up from the current $18 per hour starting wage. And that would add about $500,000 to the court's roughly $4 million payroll. But the staffing shortage is a pretty dire situation there. And it's really no wonder if officers are making 18 bucks an hour. I mean, retail jobs are paying more than that right now. And, you know, O'Malley said that the facility has only about 80% of the officers it needs to be properly staffed. And as a result, kids who are being housed there are often kept in isolation because the center is understaffed. And that's illegal. So this really started to bubble over in August when teens at the facility broke windows and a TV and some ceiling tiles when officers wouldn't let them out for recreation time because of low staffing. So, yeah. I mean, so, low, so yeah. look, I, I get it that you know, Armin Budish did the right thing when he gave a 20 percent raise to the to the jail guards. The jail was having trouble bringing people in because of COVID, because of the conditions. And they had been among the lowest paid jail guards in the state. And he changed that with the stroke mm-hmm. of a pen. Great thing. You know, the, the, those people are the wards of the taxpayer. You've got to treat them humanely. And that moved it. And OK, he didn't see it coming that this would create envy at the juvenile detention center where guards are going, wait a minute, if I can make that much money as a guard, I'm going over there. They've already lost two. But now that the juvenile court judge, chief judge has said, hey, hey, you have debilitated us with this pay disparity. The simple thing to do was to make the pay equitable so that they're not competing for officers based on wage. And instead he undercuts them. And exactly. keeps the disparity. He is just as clueless a leader as I've ever seen. And my bet is they'll eventually get there because they have to. These are children. You could make an argument that the guards at the detention center should make more because it's harder to care for children. This isn't a penal 
institution. This is a place where you're taking care of wards of the county that are young. You're supposed to rehabilitate them. You're supposed to have counseling skills. At the jail guard, you're just locking people up pending trial right. or for penalty. It's a different mission over there, and they're underpaid. It's, um, right. it's mind-boggling. And I can't imagine putting children in isolation just because you don't have the staffing to, to monitor them. I mean, and, and loose staffing also means more officers are covering shifts on overtime, which can lead to burnout, which I'm sure leads to people quitting. And it's a terrible cycle. So you have fewer guards, less monitoring the, you know, the kids who are there. I mean, it's just, it's, well, hopefully they'll and, resolve this soon. And the other thing we should point out, the county is responsible for the county jail. The juvenile court judges are responsible for the detention center. So it comes out of the court budget. But the fact is, it's all the county budget. The court gets its money from the county budget. So so for Armand Budish to think, well, I'm going to take care of my thing. The hell with those guys. That's their problem. It's just not the way to do business. Mm -hmm. He has a responsibility for that detention center because he sits on top of the budget. Maybe the county council, which has been useless ever since we changed government, will stand up and and fix this without without waiting for Armin Budish to come to his senses. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the top 10 destination airports for people flying out of Cleveland? Laura Johnson, Susan Glazer put together an interesting story. I had no idea that five of the top 10 would be in one state. No, and I didn't know. Well, I guess you could have guessed that, right? But I didn't know that we, this data was so, re, you know, so available and that we could check it quarterly. But the New York City metro area used to be the top destination for Cleveland's back, back, way, way back ago before pre, before COVID. And now we're looking at Florida. Pretty much that's where people want to go. The Miami metro area includes both Fort Lauderdale and Miami airports is the number one destination for Clevelanders. It was second in 2019. Orlando is second now. Uh, it was third in 2019. Fort Myers, and then we get to Atlanta, out of the state of Florida, but then back to Let me to interrupt Tampa. you, though. The, in, in terms of just airport traffic, Orlando is number one. Yeah, correct. You're, you're exactly. putting the two airports together in the region, but airport the, as airports go, Orlando has was tops two years ago. It's tops today. Right, and the whole list is just dominated by leisure travel. You know, Phoenix, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Denver, and then New York finally is number 10. Weirdly, no one is flying to Chicago anymore. It used to be number four in 2019. It didn't make the top 10 in 2021. So I don't know if just people are driving instead because they're like, I'm not getting on a plane to go to Chicago or just no one's going there because there's no business travel. Yeah, it sounds like what people are doing is avoiding crowded, really tightly crowded places. Although Florida is so overrun with COVID, <laughs> right. I'm kind of surprised. So if, if, you're, if you're dumb enough to go to Florida, you're dumb enough to get on a plane <laughs> during the Layla, pandemic. This was during the first quarter of You didn't have to introduce me for that comment. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this is January through March. So this was when people were looking to get out of the cold and the really high COVID cases here at the time and looking to just be outside because it's easier to be outside in Florida in January than it is in Cleveland. I don't know, Layla. I think Laura sounds awfully defensive. I think she was one of those people that went to Florida. <laughs> I did go to Florida in April, <laughs> I, know. But I drove and I Disney World calls. <laughs> I did not go to, I didn't I went to Disney the month before the pandemic. That was like the oh, luckiest oh, yeah. trip of my life. All right. You're listening to this week in the CLE. With a similar proposal in Cleveland, how many other cities, counties, and other governments use participatory budgeting 
to let the people to decide how to spend some public tax dollars and interest them more in their governments. Leila Tassi, this is another Robin Goyce story that yeah. gets into a trend that's everywhere else but here. I know. We've been hearing about participatory budgeting for months now, and that progressive group of city council candidates are largely in support of the idea, and some of the mayoral candidates too. And especially now that Cleveland has that $500 million American Rescue Plan windfall in its disposal, the, the idea of carving out a portion of that and letting the public decide how to spend it is just so intriguing. So Stimulus Watch reporter Robin Goyce took a closer look at how the participatory budgeting process works in other cities where it's been in practice for at least a couple of years. And she discovered that this method, which is known as PD, has been used in thousands of cities, counties, states, housing authorities, schools, and other institutions to you know, make decisions about, about money. So for the story, Robin talked to folks in Chicago, Durham, North Carolina, and Atlanta, and they described for her how in each place, the public can nominate ideas, help develop and vet those ideas, and then vote on their favorites. So in Chicago, for example, each ward sets aside $1.5 million of their infrastructure improvement money to be spent through PB. And one great example from Robin's story was that in Chicago, there was this dilapidated train underpass where the lights had gone out and the fence was crumbling, and it was just super creepy and no one would use it. So instead, people were crossing over the train tracks on foot well, a young man was eventually struck by a train and killed, and that motivated the community to solve this problem through participatory budgeting. And in Durham, they're, they're using PB to create an LGBTQ youth center and a STEM youth center, adding more bus shelters and solar panels and USB charging stations and local art and you know accessible ramps for people with disabilities and on and on. And what I found most interesting were the creative voting mechanisms, how people weigh in on their, their favorite ideas. In many cases, they let anyone over the age of 13 or 14 vote. And you can do so by these pop-up voting kiosks where people are there with iPads or paper ballots, or you can vote online. And then there's ranked voting where you choose your favorites first through fifth choice. And then there's this shopping cart voting system where you put as many projects into your shopping cart as you can until you hit a certain spending threshold. This is so innovative and interesting. And so, you know, after reading Robin's story, just get a better sense that this is a real thing that, you know, great projects can be achieved in a community through this methodology. It's not just some touchy feely concept to discuss on the campaign trail, but you <laughs> hate it. I can hear you going, but no, but, no, but. no, 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 no. I'm saying, but I think part of the goal too, right, is to get people to be interested in oh, their yeah. government. You know, Definitely. I mean, this, this year in city council, we have some very, very serious challengers to the incumbents. People have genuine choices to make today and in November. But but we know in over the past 20 years, a lot of these council races have been a joke. There have not been solid challengers. This is a way of getting people interested in their government and thinking, wow, this is kind of cool. I'd like to right. to do more of this. So right. so it's not just that it gets gets projects done, it it gets people much more invested in how government operates. This is not really a favorite idea of incumbents, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> a lot of them sort of feel like, you know, that's what you elected us for, is to make these decisions. You can't just, you know, you can't do this by by committee of, of all people. And, uh, and, and interestingly, you know, that's what the challengers are picking up on, that they feel like they you know, part a major underpinning of their campaigns is this idea of, of handing more power back to the people 
and, and well, that and takes the form of this, and it also takes the form of you know more public comment at, at you know at, at meetings and things like that. But that incumbent argument is so bogus because you're not saying we're going to run a one and a half billion dollar budget by having people right, vote on every line right. item. You're saying let's take a small percentage of the budget and make it discretionary for community involvement because we want to hear from residents. Right. I and mean, it was required by the American Rescue Plan that you seek the public's input. This is just a much cooler way of doing that. The, you know, the incumbents, they don't, they don't want to give up any control. They're, right. they're, they feel like they have a right to their seats whenever you talk to them. It's like, this is my seat. No, it's not. It's the voter's seat and they're going to pick who's in there. It'll be interesting to see who you know, makes can it. Can I add one more thing about this, which I thought was so like charming? In one of these cities, either Chicago or Durham, I can't remember, they they when they have the ribbon cutting ceremony for for one of these projects, they they feature the person who proposed it. I'd love that wow. idea. Isn't yeah, that cool? That is cool. <laughs> okay, check out the story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How is the Cleveland Clinic, which has refused to battle the spread of the coronavirus by manning vaccines for its workforce? restricting the general public in the name of battling the coronavirus. Laura Johnston, this one just struck me as preposterous. They won't take the step that leading health institutions across the country have taken to, to keep patients safe by making sure their workforce is vaccinated. And now they're sticking it to the public. Yeah, they are. And right now, clinic patients can have two visitors per day in all settings, which if you think about it in some, I mean, that's not a lot of visitors if you're in the hospital. Um, now they're going to be limiting it for people who are COVID positive. They're basically going to be allowed one visitor. And that includes like pediatrics, little kids who are in the hospital, uh, people who um, labor and delivery. So women having babies, they're only going to be allowed one visitor if they're COVID positive. They're allowed two visitors if they're negative. Um, they're going to keep, I believe, the same um visiting hours, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. All visitors must be at least 18, wear a mask, and pass a COVID health screening upon arrival. But yeah, I, this, this was actually really popular on our website yesterday. I think a lot of people were trying to figure out if they can go visit their loved ones in the hospital. Well, I think people are also, we've heard a lot. We've gotten a lot of letters and things. People are outraged that our two leading health institutions won't do the right thing. You know, the president is, is, is issuing an order to compel all healthcare workers to get the vaccine so they'll end up being dragged into it kicking and screaming instead of showing leadership by having done it in advance. I just, this would have a lot more credibility, I think, with people if, you know, about how they want to stem the spread of the coronavirus, if they do the right thing with their staff. If I had to go in there for a procedure, I would not want to, to find that the people doing the work on me are not vaccinated. I mean, it's just, it's, it's not okay. And so I, j I just found this to be very hypocritical when I saw the story. Can I jump in? Layla Tassi. I, I agree with you completely, totally hypocritical, but my, so my husband, everyone knows my husband is a, is a nurse at Cleveland Clinic main campus. And he has been telling me lately that he has anecdotally noticed an uptick in the number of patients he has, he has come into contact with who during their stay in the hospital contracted COVID somehow. And he did from, believe- From the workforce. Well, well that's the thing. Workers. Yes, I acknowledge you with a largely unvaccinated workforce or you know where, you, where it's not mandated, you don't know if it's coming from the workforce or from visitors. But he said that the unrestricted visiting was out of hand and that there were some patients who, there was one patient who he said had a 
a stream of dozens of people coming in, that it was just a constant flow. And he's like, we don't know the, the you know, the, the COVID status or the vaccination status of any of these people. And they're just flowing in, packing the room. You know, he's, he, it's, so he's, he felt like it was a mixed bag of, of causes, but to clamp down at one of them, you know, I mean, you got to do, <laughs> right. yeah, it's hypocritical. I, I, I agree completely. And for the safety of my own husband, I wish that they would just mandate vaccination right. among, the, they, among the staff. Don't get me wrong. They're doing the right thing with the visitation. I, they should because they're trying to keep patients safe, but you need the whole package. You can't, you, you can't just say, well, we're going to, we're going to make sure the public doesn't infect our patients. We don't really care if our workforce does. Right. So it's, it's the, it's the hypocrisy that I'm talking about here. I think the hospitals probably should all have a stricter visitation policy. Can we, can I add one just thing? I mean, we're, we're seeing higher capacity or, you know, smaller capacity in the hospitals there are they're obviously dealing with huge influx of patients right now and they probably just cannot deal with any more people in them mm. well mm. they probably have a little bit more capacity if their workforce was vaccinated and not risking spreading the coronavirus more widely you're listening to this week in the cle so what did we find out when we asked how it was that cleveland lost 110 million dollars because of the pandemic even though it was allowed to collect income taxes from people working from home outside the city. Leila Tassi, turns out they lost a whole lot of money, a whole lot of different ways. They did. This story came about because when Frank Jackson's chief of staff slash finance director, Sharon Dumas, was at the city council table a couple of weeks ago explaining that $110 million of the city's $511 million American Rescue Plan money would have to go toward recovering revenue lost during the pandemic, we were like, um, come again. <laughs> haven't haven't you been telling us that, you know, haven't you been holding on to all of the income taxes from commuters who've been working remotely all this time? Surely that should mean the city's not 110 million in the hole, as you say. Well, reporter Bob Higgs drilled into that number and discovered the myriad ways that the city has been just hemorrhaging money. Income tax collections were down nearly $50 million because, of course, widespread layoffs and furloughs across many industries. Admissions taxes were down nearly $14 million because of the state's public health orders that shut down Playhouse Square and all the entertainment venues and, and of course, the professional sports events. Parking taxes were down more than, you know, almost $8 million on account of people staying home building permit revenues, hotel taxes. I mean, you know, the, the hospitality industry was basically decimated. Interest income was, was down more than $4 million. And EMS billings, I thought this was an interesting category. They were down more than $3.7 million, which turns out was a byproduct of insurance companies being slower to pay the bills because they were shut down and then working remotely. I actually think that's a story on its own. But millions of dollars more were lost in other categories, casino revenue, parking violations, motor vehicle taxes. So basically, all the ways that every industry suffered inflicted some kind of suffering on the city of Cleveland, and it's not over. Dumas foreshadowed that the city would likely need to seek more to cover 2021 shortfalls because parts of the local economy, like the hospitality industry, still aren't bouncing back the way that they were expected to. So this was really eye-opening. I mean, initially, we remember on this podcast, we were like, wait a minute, 110 million? But you've been picking my pocket for the last <laughs> year. <laughs> it turns out it's way worse than we thought. <laughs> well, that's what the American Rescue Plan is there for, though. It was supposed to reimburse whatever they lost and then provide extra to spark 
renewal. So the, the taking 110 million out of the 511, it still leaves plenty more to cover additional but losses. But doesn't scare you that that you know they you know they they like Duma said 2021 might bring more hemorrhaging. They might need to plug up that stop the bleeding with more of the American Rescue Plan money. What I don't know. I'm scared that half of it will be taken in by by this uh, revenue loss. Yeah, we'll have to see. It's good stuff by Bob Higgs. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do students do in schools that give them the highest risk of getting the coronavirus? And what are the lowest risk activities? Layla Tassi, this was an interesting approach to looking at what's going on in the schools by reporter Hannah Drown. Yeah, Hannah Drown sat in a couple weeks ago on a virtual forum featuring a number of doctors and experts who were discussing COVID in the start of the school year. And she wrote a story out of that about the harrowing prospect of sending kids back when we're seeing pediatric case counts on the rise. But afterward, She said she was really disturbed by the experts' discussion about the aerosolized nature of COVID and how the fact that it's spread in that way is so dangerous when we're talking about, you know, for example, kids eating lunch in a cafeteria unmasked, shoulder to shoulder, and of course, chatting away while they do it. And that made me think about an email I'd recently received from my fourth grader school, inviting her to participate in the school choir. And Hannah was like, oh boy, let me tell you what I learned about how singing (laughs) spreads aerosols. And the next thing we knew, we were mapping out the story that takes readers through the various parts of a kid's day with an eye toward, you know, the danger of COVID exposure throughout it. And so as her source, Hannah used Dr. Amy Edwards from UH, who's an infectious disease specialist. And she just takes readers right through the day and, and kind of, you know, very craftily orders it from the least the least uh, dangerous exposure time to the, to the most, as you would expect. What largely determines a kid's safety from COVID at school are the availability of masks and ventilation and the ability to keep their distance from each other. So outdoor recess carries the least risk of exposure and then all the way to the, the riskiest moment of the day being choir practice, lunchrooms, things like that. Hallways or lockers are also kind of considered low risk, which surprised me, but apparently it's the ventilation of that wide open space with many doorways and most students aren't spending that much time in the halls. Bathrooms also were surprisingly classified as a lower risk because, again, students spend very little time in those spaces. And then things like sports, it really depends on what kinds of sports you're talking about, indoor contact sports like wrestling versus you know outdoor track, swimming, things like that. So really, I love the way she she you know put this piece together. Very interesting way to think about it. I think a lot of us, you know, we put our kids on the bus and it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> like you hope the mask, you know, does its job. And I don't want to think about all the times when they're vulnerable, but this this we really should be and, thinking about it. But now you're thinking about and now it. I'm and thinking, now I'm having panic attacks. Filled with anxiety. Thanks, so <laughs> don't read this story if you're a parent because you'll have anxiety. <laughs> you're listening to this week in the CLE. Okay, good discussion. Tomorrow we'll have Seth Richardson on to hopefully talk about the winners of the primary elections in Cleveland or the lack thereof because of the the lack of, of confirmation. We'll see. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast. 